Hello, and thank you for joining LTC NAC Chat, a podcast brought to you by the American Association of Post-Acute Care Nursing, APACN. I'm your host, Amy Stewart, Vice President of Education and Certification Strategy for APACN, and I'm here today with Carol Mayer, Director of Education for Hanson Hunter & Company, to discuss ICD-10 diagnosis coding for skilled nursing facilities. Welcome, Carol. Hello. Well, let's dive right in. Carol, you're so well known for answering ICD-10 questions along with many other questions in the packing community. And today we're going to talk about ICD-10 codes. And I'm wondering, can you share with our listeners how the team can work together to choose the primary diagnosis? Well, I love this question because it should be teamwork. I think of how we used to have a morning meeting during RUG 3 and RUG 4 to set assessment reference date and look at therapy days and minutes. And now we need to have daily meetings to handle PDPM. And one of the biggest things that we need to work on together is the ICD-10 coding. What is the primary diagnosis? And it does need to be a group before even admission. So when you're getting your documents from the hospital, when you're looking at shall we admit this resident or not, we should be looking over the diagnoses from the hospital. And after the resident is admitted, I would say the day after, if at all possible, the team should be together looking at the medical records, the hospital discharge summary, all of the progress notes from the hospital, other physician documentation, surgical reports, and also if the attending physician in the facility has already seen the resident and has an HNP, we want that. And together, what you're looking for is the primary reason for the Medicare Part A stay. And I think that often we lose track of what we're looking for. But we're looking for what is the main reason this resident needs Medicare and that we're going to have that in I-20B on the MDS and we're going to have that as the primary diagnosis on the claim. And so together we need to discuss that because it's not just one person's opinion. It should be what's driving their care plan, what is the main reason that Medicare coverage is required. And you know, when often there are multiple diagnoses, we admit residents who are have many comorbidities and maybe they went to the hospital for one reason and that was resolved in the hospital, but other things developed along the stay. And we need to determine why do they need skilled coverage in the nursing home? So it doesn't need to match the hospital's primary diagnosis. And so often we'll see that there could be more than one of the resident's diagnoses. Right now we're dealing with COVID. And so we have, we might have a resident who went to the hospital for an injury and developed COVID and turning into COVID pneumonia. And so they're coming to us and maybe they still need isolation related to COVID. We're treating the COVID pneumonia. And we also have the injury. And so for therapy, they're going to be looking at, well, it's the injury and nursing we would be looking at, well, yes, there is an injury and maybe there was surgery and a surgical wound care, but we're dealing with pneumonia and the effects of that and have the team decide together what is the main reason 
that this resident requires a Part A stay, which might be different from resident to resident in a similar situation. Another example, and this one I think is fairly common, a resident falls at home in the community and they fracture their arm and they fracture their ankle. So they go to the hospital and perhaps they can cast the ankle but need to do surgery on the arm and they come to us with having surgical care to their arm and the arm is pinned so there's limited weight bearing and you're in the meeting and you're looking through the resident's record you see these two injuries and PT wants it to be the primary diagnosis to be the ankle and OT wants it to be the arm and nursing's going well there's surgical wound care for the resident's arm but let's talk about this resident together. All right, so the resident's arm that was injured is their dominant side, it's the right side, and they're right-handed, so now they cannot feed themselves easily and comb their hair and reach for the call light, and how are we going to deal with all that? And OT has to help them to you know, learn how to do their ADLs and care for themselves using their non-dominant side. And physical therapy says, well, you know what? They need a walker to walk with. And, you know, they have a walking cast on, but they can't really lean on that arm. So that arm really is impacting our therapy as well. And together the team decides it's the arm fracture that's the primary diagnosis. When there are two or more diagnoses that either could be primary and the team decides which one is the one that most likely is going to require more skilled services, it is important to document in the medical record that the team recognized that these two diagnoses could be primary, and they came to the decision that the arm fracture was primary related to the resident's right hand was the dominant side and has limited weight bearing, affecting their ability to have physical therapy, occupational therapy, and needing nursing services. And we're seeing sometimes when Medicare reviews, especially for managed care reviews right now, what we're seeing is that there could be a denial if the reviewer thought, well, why did they choose this diagnosis instead of that? But if it's documented in the medical record, then it's most likely going to pass the review as being the primary diagnosis going to need to have the medical record, which everyone could have on a laptop if it's electronic, or maybe you have a big screen TV in your conference room that you can cast it on that everyone can see. You're going to need an ICD-10 coding manual because we're going to have to find the ICD-10 code for that arm fracture. And we are going to need the CMS mapping tool. So working together, someone could be looking up the code. Once we've just decided what the diagnosis is, someone's looking up the code in the ICD-10 coding manual, someone else is checking the mapping file once that code has been determined. And we also need to look at, do we need to query the physician? Is the diagnosis that the physician wrote specific enough that it will map? And if not, we need to query the physician for a more specific diagnosis, and we need to have that back on or before the assessment reference date. So that's why this meeting takes teamwork, and it needs to be done early in that residence Medicare stay so that you know, we can get more information from the hospital if we need, uh, signed you know, copies of surgical reports, et cetera, and that we can have our physician queried if we do need more 
specific information. I really appreciate that explanation, Carol. I think that there's a lot of listeners out there who still wait for someone to give them those ICD-10 codes or the primary diagnosis. And I love that team approach that you talked about and the examples were excellent. I wanna shift gears a little bit and talk about diagnosis mapping. What do listeners need to know about diagnosis mapping? Understanding the mapping file is important and you can find the mapping file on the CMS website on the PDPM page at the very bottom. You can find the link and you're going to need the link for each fiscal year has its own updated file and it changes every October 1st when new codes are added and old codes are deleted or converted to having more characters. And so CMS updates the mapping file each October 1st. So you're going to need to make sure you have the most updated file in the states that require the I-20B answered on the OBRA admissions for residents who are not on Medicare. There is also an OBRA file that they can use looking for the primary diagnosis. So that the mapping file is updated annually And so you need the most updated copy, and it is a spreadsheet. And so at the bottom, you'll see four tabs. The first tab is an overview. The second tab is the clinical categories, and that's where you're going to find your primary diagnosis code. The third tab is the speech comorbidities, and the fourth tab is the non-therapy ancillary comorbidities as well. In October, we'll have additional files, additional codes, We'll have deleted codes and we'll have updated codes. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But when you're using the mapping file, let's start with the primary diagnosis. So you would click on that second tab at the bottom under clinical categories by diagnosis. And when you pull that up, it's a spreadsheet. You pull that up and you'll see it has multiple columns. And the column B is is going to be where you find the ICD-10 codes. And you'll find that there are 72,747, to be specific, ICD-10 codes right now that have been mapped to the PDPM payment system. So instead of trying to search through 72,747 codes, so here's my tip, all right? So click in that column, in column B, on any one of those ICD-10 codes right in front of you, just click in column B with your mouse, And then on your keyboard, you want to hold down the CTRL, the control button, and then hit the F for find, F. All right, so control F, you're going to hit those together or control and then F, and it brings up a find box. And in that find box is where you're going to type in the ICD-10 code that your team has met together, identified, coded, as what you're going to use in I-20B, and you would type that ICD-10 code into the find box, and but you don't put the decimal. So they don't have decimals in that CMS file. So, you know, most codes have three characters and then a decimal, so just don't use the decimal. And you type in the code, and then you hit the find all button, and it takes you directly to the code that you typed in, if you typed it in correctly. And when it brings it up, it shows you the code. 
and then it shows you a description so you can make sure is it arm fracture right so we have b for the icd-10 code c for the description and then the d column shows you the default code whether it will map to payment or not and which of the 10 possible mappings it would do and it, the only thing you have to worry about really is to make sure it doesn't say rtp return to provider the return to provider codes cannot map to payment they're going to need to be more specified by the physician if it has medical management or you know acute neuro we know that it will code to payment and then the final column shows us whether there's a potential to increase the payment category for the PT and OT components if the resident had major surgery. And it will tell you not applicable if it won't or that the resident might be able to qualify for one of two surgical categories. So that all is a very important information. And so you're going to use that diagnosis file for that to find the primary diagnosis. The third tab is the speech comorbidities. And when you're looking at the speech component of PDPM, speech comorbidities are one of the big three categories for determining the payment. And there are 102 speech comorbidity codes that could impact payment under the speech component of PDPM. So that you can use the same find box and do that in your 102 codes for the speech comorbidity codes. And the final tab are your non-therapy ancillary comorbidities. So the tab at the bottom, click on that, the fourth tab, and it brings up 2,117 codes, which could potentially add points to your non-therapy ancillary component of PDPM. So finding your way through the mapping tool is very important for Medicare payment under PDPM. And in the OBRA requirements for the OBRA assessments in the states that require that I-20B answered. They don't have a return to provider. All those codes have been converted to medical management if it's a standalone OBRA assessment. That was a great explanation of the diagnosis mapping. Thank you for that. What steps should be taken if the hospitalist resolved the diagnosis that actually is the reason why the resident requires skilled care? Well, this is a problem we see very frequently, and it is very frustrating, especially if they're coming to us for, let's say, endocarditis, uh, and they're going to have six weeks of antibiotics, and the hospitalist resolves the diagnosis of endocarditis. Well, of course, it's still an active diagnosis. We're treating it with IV antibiotics, they're weak and they need support and nutrition and therapy and, and IV antibiotics, which are all daily skilled services related to that endocarditis. So what can we do? Well, I find it very interesting. I've taught, I teach ICD-10 around the country and I've taught groups of physicians. And when I'm asking the physicians, why would you, or why would the hospitalist Resolve a diagnosis that requires active treatment in the nursing home and on the discharge summary, you're saying to discharge them to the nursing home to receive these IV antibiotics. And they answered that, you know, if they don't resolve the diagnosis when they discharge them from the hospital, 
that they have to do this whole like discharge plan and turn it over. But if they say resolve, they're done. So that sounds worrisome, but that was their honest answer. And so I recommend if that's happening a lot, that you and your medical director have a meeting with the hospitalists to explain how this impacts the resident's ability to have Medicare coverage. And that if the treatment needs to continue in the nursing home, there does need to be that handoff and that transfer of information. And it is still an active diagnosis. But if that still isn't happening or you're getting a resident from a hospital that you don't typically deal with and that's happened, your resident's attending physician can document the diagnosis as active. And that would be what my next step would be. I would query my resident's attending physician and uh, document and just ask the physician, is the diagnosis of endocarditis still an active diagnosis? The resident is continuing to receive IV antibiotics to treat endocarditis. And a physician needs to document it in the medical record as an active diagnosis, and then you can code it. But you're going to need all that to be accomplished by the assessment reference date of the five-day. Thank you. That's another great reason to set up those team huddles to talk about the ICD-10 code in case you do run into something like that. You have a little time then to get the accurate diagnosis. Exactly. What can our listeners do to keep the residents' ICD-10 codes up to date? This has kind of been, I think, an ongoing problem I've seen for years where somebody has to manage keeping all the codes accurate and up to date as people's conditions change. So what can our listeners do to keep the residents' ICD-10 codes up to date? I look at this as there's two big processes that are required in the nursing home to do that. First, one of them is annually. So annually, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, annually CMS and CDC release new codes that become effective typically October 1st. And now in these last few years with the pandemic, they've also updated codes in April and they will in April of this year as well. In every October or April, when they're updating codes, they on the CMS website and the CDC website will release the files that show the new codes. It's under addendum. And so you can download that to see what new codes there are. And then there is a conversion table. And the conversion table is going to show you which codes have been discontinued and also which codes will now require an additional character or that the code itself has completely changed. As we saw this year with the code for depression, it now ends with an A. And so it kind of was a whole surprise that they're changing a code that we use very, very commonly. So they also list the new and updated coding guidelines. So you would start by whoever in your facility is managing the actual codes would download that conversion table and you can sort it by year because it's going to show you all the years or at least the last number of years. So I sort it by year so that the, you know, 2022 comes to the top and so that I can see what has been changed or what will be changed. So in this Coming October, I would look at the 2023 codes. So I want that to float to the top, and it shows you the previous code, which is basically meaning before October 1st code, which is going to be what's in your residence medical record at that point. 
And then it says the current code, which would mean in, you know, fiscal year 2022, or in the case of this October, fiscal year 2023, what the new code will be. And typically they require additional specificity. So a code that maybe just had four characters is now going to need five, and it's going to break it down into higher levels of specificity. And maybe your medical record already would support coding one of those five character codes versus the four character codes because the physician's diagnosis was already specific enough, but very often it's not. And so we're going to need to query the physician to find you know, the specific code for this resident and the, the level of specificity that's needed for that. The way that you're going to do this now in your facility, because you've downloaded the conversion file and you're just going to start with, you know, the first one. And I would put it in my software and run a report for all the residents who currently have that diagnosis code. So most softwares have a diagnosis tab, a section, a list, and run a report with that specific ICD-10 code and get the list of all the residents who are impacted by this change. And then you would have to go through those medical records to determine whether there is enough specificity in the physician's written documentation to update that code. And so again, one by one, you're going to need to go through that to be able to make sure that you have the most updated codes. And it's going to happen right after October 1st. You can't change them until they are official codes. Quarterly, is when most of us update, we're looking at our diagnosis, we're trying to determine the active diagnosis for MDS coding, but now is the time for the MDS team to be looking at the resident's diagnoses to determine, are there any diagnoses that need to be resolved? For example, an acute MI is only acute for four weeks. If someone had an acute MI two months ago, it's no longer acute. And that is going to need to change to an old MI code, or it's going to need to be moving to a code that shows what treatment they still need, but you cannot have the acute MI code anymore. And I often see face sheets and med sheets with acute MI on it. And if that resident would take that face sheet out to go to a new uh, specialist that specialist looking at the diagnosis list might think, oh my goodness, they just had an MI. I don't think I can treat them right now because that might be too dangerous with an acute MI. Well, sometimes those MIs that are on the face sheet were three years old. And so making sure those things are resolved is important. So doing it quarterly makes it a little bit more manageable. If you could do it right at four weeks, that would be ideal. Infections are another thing. So, you know, I often look at face sheets and it has urinary tract infection and pneumonia on there. And again, they haven't had those for years. And I can't diagnose and you can't diagnose. And so we can't resolve them. It's the physician. So we're going to need to query the physician. May this diagnosis be resolved. May this diagnosis be resolved. May this diagnosis be changed to a personal history of. May COVID be changed to the post-COVID or should it be resolved? And, and so when we're doing our quarterly MDS, I think that's the ideal time to be looking at all of the diagnoses lists and making sure that they are accurate. Now, 
I'm not saying that they have to be accurate. So history of codes are important in a resident's medical record. They just don't go on the MDS. But to change it from an active diagnosis to a personal history or resolving, like in an idea of an infection, would be important that we can keep all of that up to date. Because every month that list usually prints on those recap records for the physicians to sign. And so they're, they keep signing that things are acute when they really are not. And so we as a team, an MDS team, medical records team, do need to at least quarterly take a really good look at the diagnoses in our diagnosis section of our electronic health record, assuming that we're using electronic health record, and making sure that those diagnoses are up to date and querying the physician anytime we have any questions. Carol, thank you for that information. You've provided our listeners with so many great tips. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners today? Well, I think that it is important that you have more than one person in your nursing home who can do ICD-10 coding, who understands it. I think you do need a team of clinicians and that it's not just on one person's shoulders because, you know, what happens if they go on vacation or get ill or... Um, or leave. And so we need the team to understand that you want to make sure that everyone is keeping up to date, that we have new ICD-10 coding manuals every October, that you're doing some continuing education around ICD-10 coding, that you don't just copy ICD-10 codes from the hospital without taking a look at, is it still active in the nursing home? Or has it already been treated and it's no longer even an active diagnosis? Like if somebody goes to the hospital for cholecystitis, they take their gallbladder out. They don't have cholecystitis anymore. But I see those diagnoses in SNF records when they didn't even have a gallbladder when they were admitted. So we need to take a really good look and understand what is an active diagnosis. Is it now something when they're admitted to the nursing home, I'm only looking at the diagnoses that affect them in the nursing home, if it was resolved in the hospital, then that diagnosis doesn't get pulled over as well. And so we have to make sure that we are getting that correct diagnosis. It's our job to identify the correct code from the physician's documentation. So again, just copying a code from the hospital, maybe their coder is just typing in the diagnosis and letting the computer code it. I see often documents coming from the hospital that say fracture of unspecified hip. I'm not kidding you. I see that and more than once. And so we know which hip it is. And so we want to have the correct code. And so we have to make sure that we're doing that. We are providing the subsequent encounter. The hospital's doing the initial encounter. So typically what we're doing is the subsequent encounter during the healing and recovery So our seventh character has to show that. We're dealing with the late effects, the sequelae of um, acute injuries and illnesses. And so we have to make sure that we all do understand that. And uh, this is something that we're not all very comfortable with. And so it does take effort to understand coding guidelines and how to look up a code. But the more you do it, the more comfortable you're going to get. And when you can do it as a team, then you have multiple people comfortable and you can help each other to become 
better at identifying correct ICD-10 codes. Thank you for joining me today, Carol. I've learned a lot from you. I always do, and I love chatting with you. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources and tools for nurse assessment coordinators, please visit our website at www.aapacn.org. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the LTC NAC Chat Podcast. Heard the news about how you can improve quality care and increase efficiency with Ability? Ability offers a range of applications to simplify the complexity of healthcare, allowing organizations of all types and sizes to spend more time on care and less time manually collecting, analyzing, and reporting data. This allows you to remain in compliance while making data-driven decisions that benefit residents. With Ability, your facility can improve resident outcomes, optimize reporting data, enhance reimbursements, and much, much more. Discover what Ability has to offer at AbilityNetwork.com slash a pack-in.